Get ready for a one-of-a-kind event you don't want to miss. Variety's Entertainment Marketing Summit, presented by Deloitte. Register now for this free virtual event, featuring powerful conversations with brand leaders from companies such as Disney, Amazon Prime Video, iHeartMedia, TikTok, and more. They'll discuss the entertainment industry's evolving digital trends, storytelling strategies, and new platforms to deliver marketing messages. Registration is free, but required for virtual access. So visit variety.com slash marketing summit now. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. As a Black artist, it is so hard to get films made that don't fit a certain box of how they see us. And that therein lies the problem. So if you can't make films, then what is there to be nominated for? So that becomes the problem. And inclusivity cannot be a hashtag. You can't sort of fill a role in because you want to be politically correct or because you want to avoid the cancel culture. You've got to write roles for people of color that are culturally specific, that are just as thought out as our white counterparts' roles to get to the point of excellence so that we could be considered for awards. But a lot of time with inclusivity, it's a second thought. That's the problem. We're the leftovers, you know, as Toledo says. Viola Davis broke a record this year when she was nominated for her outstanding performance for Best Actress in Netflix's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. She became the most nominated Black woman in Oscar history with just four nominations, along with becoming just the second to ever win an Oscar and return for another nomination. I'm Clayton Davis. On this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast, we talked to Ma Rainey Blackbottom star Viola Davis. She discusses working on another August Wilson play following her Oscar-winning role in Fences, which was directed by Ma Rainey producer Denzel Washington. She also talks race and representation issues that still plague Hollywood. Later on, we'll also sit down with Oscar nominee Ramin Barani, who received the nomination and adapted screenplay for Netflix's The White Tiger, which she also directed. But first, on the award circuit roundtable, we discussed the BAFTA Awards, along with the sad news of the closing of LA's beloved Arclight Cinema. It's all happening this week on the final Oscar voting opening day episode of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor at Variety, joined today with Janelle Riley. There is no Janelle, only the dolls. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Jazz, <laughs> Jasmine Tanke. No, no, no. It's Jazz. We are, no, no, no. I'm not in trouble. You're calling it's, me Jazz. We're, we're going to keep that going as long as we can. Yep, yep. Taking you to the principal's office. Yep. And Michael Schneider, Esquire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he has his JD. No one knew that. There you go. <laughs> I am, I'm going to start using that. Michael Schneider, Esquire. So... I feel like we need to kick things off by talking about the news on Monday night that rocked Los Angeles, rocked our newsroom, rocked movie fans everywhere, at least in Southern California. The closing of the Arclight and Pacific theaters, uh, shocking the town, really. How do you all Is sort of really take this? Is it really going to happen? Is it really going to? I keep right. just thinking there's so many ri- rich fans, someone has to save it, or is that not realistic? Yeah. 
Who's yeah, going to come to the rescue, right? Like, yeah. so many names are in, out there. And, you know, it's like, Tarantino, can you save it? Ted Sarandos, can you save it? Like, the Avengers, can you save it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th- the, the thing is, these are, these are, this is a big business. So the idea that, like, a one-off, like a Tarantino is going to suddenly want to own a chain of major movie theaters is, is sort of silly. Even the idea that Netflix wants to suddenly create an entire new division focused on theater exhibition seems a little far-fetched. I, I think it's much more realistic to think it may be one of the existing chains or, or uh, maybe in Southern California, uh, major business people sort of like, uh, uh, you know, like a Rick Caruso who owns the the Grove and the Americana. Uh, it's probably going to be someone more like that, but I'm guessing like an AMC or a chain that exists already. I have a question. I have a question for an East Coaster that doesn't know much about this at all. So there are four arc lights in LA, correct? Am I right? Three. There's three in the past. Yeah, I say four yeah. at least. Four? Okay. Yeah. So is, can this be solved with a donor thing? Like, you know how much money is like needed to... Like a GoFundMe? Yeah, like, yeah, like how much money is actually needed to, like, save it? Like what Michael said, it's the problem of running an ongoing business. It's not like they need a one-time cash infusion. I right. could be wrong, but, yeah. Because yeah. I'm just thinking, if you, if, you get, if you can give them enough capital to get them through 2021... Will twenty twenty two they'll be back on their feet because at that point you're I guess we're back a hundred percent I mean I mean I guess that's the big yeah. question like not to be a Debbie Downer but yeah. I feel like you know every day it's like there's other strains well, <laughs> right. you, well you guys are up fifty percent right you can do fifty percent capacity now in California yeah, I don't know yeah. I'm not going anywhere and it'll, <laughs> so, it'll soon exactly. be a hundred percent and in June it'll be a hundred percent. I think this this thing with the arc light. I know other movie theaters have opened, like the AMC at Westfield, but for them, it wasn't. They wanted to open when they had enough movies. In you know that were going to be opening, like certain you know like weekly new releases, and yeah. I think they didn't see that with everything shifting. So I don't know, but. I just feel like with so much love for that play. I mean, I remember when the, the arc, like, God, I'm old. When it first opened and people, and they were like, you know, we're going to have somebody in the screening to make sure that the sound and picture quality are good and people are talking. There will only be two previews maximum. And I was like, have you read my fanfic? Like, this is a dream come true. I can't believe you're doing this, you know? And people are so passionate about it. It's hard to see movies on another screen when you've been to the arc light. I think I've I think I've been there twice. By the way, I think I I think I saw Live by Night there. Ben Affleck. I think he did Q and A Q&A there. And Jazz, did we see First Man there? I couldn't remember. I looked. No, at no, the no. Days. We saw First Man at IMAX at, at the Universal City Walk. Okay. Out there, we yeah. did. That was okay. in the ArcLight. But like Janelle said, like you know, you remember the first time you went to the ArcLight, and my first time was like in 2014. I was visiting LA for four days. Gravity had opened, and so I went with Jen her best friend, and we watched it in 3D at the Dome. And, you know, I went back to London and watching a movie at, like, Leicester Square just didn't even compare to watching a movie at the Arclight Dome. And It's, yeah. Janelle, always the Q&As there. I finally got into the green room, which is amazing. 
And well, let's let's I talk real quick name. about yeah. Janelle actually had her signature in the green room. <laughs> Celebrity Janelle Riley. <laughs> yes, I'm very I'm very big with the uh, green room crowd. Um, yeah, no, it was actually I can't remember. It was a couple of years ago. They were like, "Oh, you should sign it," and I was like, "There's Judy Dench there and Bong Joon Ho there. Like, what am I doing? Like signing this wall?" And then you know, to to keep me humble, they put little. Um, I was I think I was actually there the first time people started signing that wall like they came up with that idea yeah and uh, and i remember watching it grow and then spread into other walls or in some cases like army hammer signed the ceiling um you know (laughs) people got really creative (laughs) but uh yes yes you 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 feel pretty pretty proud of yourself and then you come in and you see that they've put your name underneath your signature to keep track and they have misspelled your first name mm. <laughs> yeah, but I, I saw that you corrected it though you fixed it so yeah and then i came back like a week later and they had fixed it which was very nice because it was Aww. like a kind of a passive aggressive move on my part but, but it's amazing because <laughs> i did you know i did a q a there for les miserables the fr- the last last year's oscar contender and then I had to interview Ariane Phillips and Barbara Ling from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there with Quentin Tarantino. So we were sitting up in the bar and just talking about Hollywood movies, their first memories of movies, and obviously Tarantino and his love for Hollywood. I mean, it was just so crazy. And I found the picture yesterday. It was like, this can't close. Like, it just cannot close. So hopefully someone comes to the rescue. I mean, someone, they, should, they could auction that wall and probably make some money. There's yeah, uh, true. W- before, so first it was just this one wall, and then I guess they ran out of room, and Sylvester Stallone signed the wall directly opposite it, and he drew a stallion, like took up half the wall, and then like signed his name, and it was like it was, t- and I remember one very funny famous actor was sitting underneath Stallone's signature and said with like the most the most driest ways like see if you can spot Sylvester Sloan is like hanging over his head yeah. and they uh, had good treats in the green room too like it was a great green room yeah. I knew the code to the door yeah. I, I would like I would like to start the bidding at $20 I will buy it for $20 <laughs> the Sylvester anyone... Sloan wall or no just... no just a wall period all the walls oh and they would yeah. respond to each other because I remember I was there where uh, writing notes it, yes because Ethan <laughs> Hawke and, and I were there, I mean, and Richard Linklater were there for Boyhood, and Ethan wrote, I love squash, and signed it. And like a couple weeks later, I was there with J.K. Simmons for Whiplash, and he wrote under it, Squash sucks. <laughs> yeah. He is, he, is, he is right. Yeah. Squash is terrible. Oh. <laughs> and I don't know if you know this, but uh, there is an, a separate green room just for the dome. And there's some pretty epic signatures in that one, mm. too. Ooh. Wow. The thing is, the other thing about the art play is, that's pretty much where everybody goes. If you live in Hollywood, like everybody just goes there to see a movie. It's yeah. the like, best. That is the place. And you always bump into people and friends and you might see the odd famous face or two watching a I, movie. I do remember when it first opened, the, the idea of paying 14 bucks was a little, because <laughs> this was 2002 and you still were like, really, we're, we're, we're paying Fourteen bucks now to see movies. Fourteen dollars. <laughs> I give anything for a fourteen dollar movie. Yeah, right yeah. Oh, it's innocent like, times. Yeah, but but yeah. I mean, I I do think. I mean, that property. I mean, first off, the Cinerama Dome is a uh, uh, 
protected historic landmarks. So there's nothing is going to happen to that. And and that whole, I mean, it's it's such a built up sort of st- uh, a structure, at least uh, Arclight Hollywood, that someone's going to come in. And Arclight owns that property. So they may even just lease it out to someone else to, to start running it and taking over business operations. Who knows what it means for their other theaters. But again, you know, Pacific owns the Grove Theaters, the Americana Brand Theaters. Those malls will find other operators to take over so you know, i hope we, you're right they, yes. they have to i mean th- those are two two valuable screens to to give up so look um, nothing against this movie it's a really fun popcorn movie but i don't want my last movie ever seen at the arc light to be birds of prey <laughs> <laughs> mine was the invisible man and i still don't i mean look yeah like you i loved it i saw it twice i just don't want that to be the last movie and i think so many people on, on twitter yesterday the light at the end of the pandemic lockdown tunnel for them was going to the arc light, hoping to see whatever movie was out. Yep. Now, my final memory of the arc light will be hugging Chris Mazzina. That's what is I he, did at the arc light. Is he any relation to Chris Messina? Messina? Is that how you say it? Messina, yes. <laughs> I say Mazzina. Because I know a Chris Mazzina. You put a little flair on it. I like it. Because it's Chris Mazzina's. Yeah. There's a guy in high school that we knew. And his name was Chris. And he, his, last name, his full name was Chris Mazzina. And that's what everyone called him. They didn't call him Chris. His full name. So I'm going to have a Messina. campaign for one podcast episode to be how to pronounce names. <laughs> how do we pronounce these names? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and Janelle's going to yell at me for everything. Hey, what's Amanda's <laughs> last name? Let's see if you retain this information. Seyfried? Cy- Cy- very yes. good. I had, to, I had to close my eyes really to do that too. I had to, like, <laughs> I had to remember looking at her and her saying it. Which, by the way, if you listen to the episode, she said, "That's how I say it." Not sure if I even say it correctly. So I think I was right all along. No, so, she's trying to make that. you feel better because she's a nice person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but 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 that's how I now know as well how to pronounce her last name because See? the start of the podcast episode. So thank you. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Lord's work. One one more coda on the uh, uh, ArcLight conversations. The one thing I'm kind of bummed about is no matter what, even if the ArcLight does reopen again, there was that joy of either you arrived too early to the yes. ArcLight, yes. so you went to Amoeba, or you were finished with your movie, and then before you went home, you went to Amoeba. Either way, it was that ArcLight Amoeba 1-2. Thankfully, Amoeba still exists. I haven't been to their new location yet. I can't wait to go, but I'm not going to wait two hours to go shopping. I'll, I'll just wait until the line goes down. But uh, they, it sounds like they have a great new location, but sadly, it's on Hollywood Boulevard now, not next to the ArcLight anymore. I am worried about Stella Barra. Because I really like that restaurant, and I think that you know, ninety nine percent of their income was from uh, people going to see movies. Yeah. And if you were super late and you had ten minutes, you would go to Veggie Grill. Like that was it. If you had time, you'd go to Amoeba and Stella Barra. If or not. just eat in the ArcLight Bar, which actually had really good food. They had Great good food. food. That was one of the early like, hey, theaters can actually have good good food. So. And fun fact, the caramel popcorn was featured on the Food Network as one of the best places to eat in L.A. What? Seek Just for the caramel popcorn? For the caramel popcorn, yeah. I was like, yep. I'm sorry, guys, that I went to L.A. and closed Arclight. <laughs> yeah, well, I left cool. L.A. and the Arclight closed, so. Ooh, so it's really Janelle's fault. I like it. So uh, moving, moving on a little bit to what we have next is BAFTA Awards happened last weekend. They sure did. And it could have 
made this just really easy. I think we know where everything's going to lie. Or we can still be in store for some surprises. But Nomadland and Chloe Zhao, one picture and director, no surprise there. Uh, Actor went to Anthony Hopkins for The Father. So brings about Janelle's most interesting question for months now. Can Anthony Hopkins bring it through in the end? And it's it's a possibility. It, it, like, I still think Bozeman wins. I think it's closer than probably Netflix likes it to be. So there is potential that it could be Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins's performance is so stunning, it, which is not to take not away a, anything yeah. from anyone else. Yeah, it's it's, it's a not great a bad lineup. One, which is why I would feel terrible for Anthony Hopkins because the internet would be terrible to him, and I would not no, be I here for I it. I actually don't think so. And first of all, fuck the internet. You know, like we're we're talking about a pocket of <laughs> Clayton is crossing his fingers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe I'm being naive, yeah, like thinking too highly Let's of the internet. Right. In this whole episode, so when people yeah. listen to yeah. it. <laughs> But, but what are you talking about, Janelle? The internet is generally very, very of calm course, and measured and, and, and uh, understands. Uh, you Look, know. anyone who has seen that performance is, is not going to complain and say he didn't yeah. deserve it. It's the truth. And, and, yeah. and I think they're an appropriate good one, too. Like they are like, yeah. like I think either one is the right answer. Um, Frances McDormand won Best Actress. So only her and Vanessa Kirby that are nominated for an Oscar were nominated at BAFTA. Uh, so now everyone has one award, one award on Oscar night, except for Vanessa Kirby. She has not won anything. Uh, Which is crazy. I thought she would win this whole season when I, I saw that movie. Yeah. yeah, she's so good. So now Andrea has Globe, Viola has SAG, Francis has uh, BAFTA, Carrie has uh, Critics' Choice. And we still don't know what's going to happen. That is what your Oscar pool, I think, banks on this year. <laughs> I mean, this, the, Mark I would say the smart money is to go with Viola winning SAG. That's that's the biggest precursor. I don't know how much the others matter, but the yeah. truth is, I don't know. You know, Carrie Mulligan did a great job hosting Saturday Night Live and, over and, the weekend, and, and, and BAFTA and BAFTA has crossover too. Yeah, and she, I feel like she would have won BAFTA if yeah. it had not been for this new weird. I think so. well, yeah. So here's my thing, and listen, it may not make any sense. I, had, I think I've said this before. I have a really hard time seeing Emerald win screenplay and Carrie not win actress. I feel like they're a package deal. And maybe, 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 maybe I'm overthinking it. Obviously, they can obviously be separate. Uh, but I, I just have trouble with that. And then there's the whole history about Chadwick and Viola both winning. They would have, you know, no two black leads have ever one before, but no two leads have ever won without the film being nominated for Best Picture. And then we're saying right now that Ma Rainey's going to win four Oscars would probably be the most winning film of the evening. And it wouldn't and it, and it wouldn't be a Best Picture nominee, which has never happened in history. Wow. But it, but but in this year, sure, why not? With actress, here's what I how I see like I I see, you know, Viola easily, Andre Day. They could split the votes that gives Carrie the win. Like, that's... That's what I think. What I see happening. But everybody's so good. I mean... It's, like, the f- crazy thing is, and I would ap- I would apply this to Best Actor, too. Like, any other year, any one of these people would have won. You know, mm-hmm. Riz Ahmed would have won any other year. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anthony Hopkins. It's just... It's... 
for, for, you know, people keep saying, like, why are they having Oscars? There's no good movies. And I'm like... God, I hate that. You are kidding me. It's the, wor- yeah. it's the worst experience to hear that all season. Uh, but in Francis, big thing against her... Like, I just don't think people step into third Oscars like this. Like, usually it's like you, you sweep the season. Or, like, Meryl stepped into a third... But she at least like she won Globe and BAFTA. And there's a was, long like, time it, in between. And there was a yeah. long time in between. Like yeah, Daniel Day Lewis, like Lincoln, it was never a question, like that season. Oh, I had a I thought Hugh Jackman had a really good shot. Actually, for a I long thought Walking yeah. Phoenix was gonna win that season and then yeah. he started missing stuff. But yeah, so th- there's that. My big question for uh you guys real quick that I did an article today about it. Trial of Chicago seven. What if it wins Best Picture and Best Picture only. Could absolutely happen. Although I think Easily. if it wins Best Picture, it might also pick up screenplay. Yes. Or editing. Or editing, yes. But since nothing makes sense this year, why not? Like, I think that's a real... Because editing, Sound of Metal 1 editing and BAFTA, sound and editing usually go together, as seen by Hacksaw Ridge, Whiplash. Um, sound of Metal is, go- is coming out of the night with like at least two Oscars, which is kind of cool. Everything's yeah, going to yeah. win one Oscar, it looks yeah. like, because I, I am switching to The Father and Adapted Screenplay. Really? I, I've said that for a while, and yeah, when BAFTA yeah. did it... It's it, such it, a good script. It is. It it's is. The way, I get it's, it. it's the way to give Father something, because Olivia Coleman probably could have been the representation, but it's not now. Yoo Jung Yoon's going to win Supporting Actress. The world yes. is good. Thank you for that. Uh, so everything wins one award, except for... For no everything. Well, right? Borat, because if it doesn't win a Borat's supporting best actress, picture. or oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm sorry. I should have been clear. Best picture nominees. I think everything wins something. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Man could probably get production design. Um, unless you think that promising, if you're on my promising young woman train, you're not picking Carrie and you jump off of original screenplay, then promising young woman is the only thing that goes home empty-handed, which is strange, also. Hold on one second. The dolls are calling me. Stop that. Don't tell them <laughs> <Sorry>. about me. <laughs> um, Wait, I did hear... Okay, I did hear a hiss. What was that, Janelle? Was I that have from no idea. Creeping? That's I, gross. Yeah, I close my eyes and the dolls pop they're up somewhere mu- they're else. They're multiplying. They're multiplying. <laughs> for listeners, real quick, there has been precedent for Best Picture Only. Uh, there's been three of them, which was uh, Mutiny on the Bounty in 35, Grand Hotel in 32, and Wings in 27, the very first winner. So, so not since the 30s. Not since, yeah, and not <laughs> since an expanded era with all this stuff. But at this point, like, whatever. Like, this season will be done and then it'll just be done. Because if you don't think Trial of Chicago 7 wins picture, then Trial of Chicago 7 is the only one that goes home empty-handed. The race to watch this weekend is the Ace Eddie Awards. See who wins editing there. I think it's going to be Sound of Metal. I think Sound of Metal, but yeah. also Ace happens in the middle of Oscar voting. I think people are voting early this year. I think they want to get this year done with. I think people are. So you done. say early in the season has been so long. <laughs> I know. I, I think they're going to vote like on Thursday and get their ballot vote and just like shut up about it. Like I don't want to. Like, I think it's yeah. I agree. Do you want me to ask what the dolls think? Yeah, is winning? Yes. Wait. One second. One second. Because they're going to tell you the promising woman's going to win the picture. Dolls to predict best picture. Huh. What they're all they're telling me right now is that they're very big fans of Maria Bakalova. They really like her work. Yeah. Yes, and they think uh, Stephen Yun is very handsome. 
These are my mom's dolls. Very they better, nice. Yeah, they've been around your mom for a while. So. <laughs> Can Maria I just Bach- tell you? Yeah, ahead, for people who don't know, I'm home in Oregon taking care of my mom post-surgery, and she picked me up at the airport on Sunday, and I timed how long before she asked about Stephen Young, and she <laughs> made it 23 minutes. That's long. Wow. Um, <laughs> did you manage to get a get well card from Stephen Yun and, and uh, pass it to your mom? I, I no, think... I, I think my mom would, you know, everyone jokes about that. Like, does, does Stephen Yun know about my mom's obsession and stuff? She would be mortified if she knew. Like, she told me, don't tweet her this stuff. And I said, <laughs> very sincerely, mom, I promise you I will not tweet her it. Um, <laughs> but if, she, yeah, like if she knew, because people were like, get Stephen Yun to say hi to your mom. And first, like okay but um secondly she would she would be horrified so it's she is to... precious cargo yes. did you bring her matt donnelly's cover with steven no but when she was going in for her surgery i've been holding on to this for a little bit i said just so you know there's an entire series that steven young stars in that i haven't made you privy to and if you come out of this and everything's okay we'll start watching it Aww. yeah and i knew she was gonna pull through hmm you have, to, you have to bribe her. <laughs> Just for the weekly Ted Lasso shout out, Janelle has her Ted Lasso mug with her. In Oregon. She brought it to Oregon. Yes. That's yes. dedication. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't go without Ted Lasso. I have to do one shameless plug, though. Because they just announced it yesterday, so I want to say it here. Uh, I'll be part of the Oscars pre-show five hours leading up to the the Oscar ceremony. I, I was about to embarrass you because I pulled up the press release. So oh. Dateline, ABC News. Uh, as Hollywood prepares for the 93rd Oscars, ABC News presents two blockbuster specials, <laughs> starting with its five-hour... Yeah, that's... Uh, Oscar countdown. It's live. in the second paragraph. If you need yeah. to like find it, that's okay. So he knows parts. exactly where it is. I love they, it. They literally just sent it out because they didn't send it out yesterday. So so, so. it's going to be hosted by Chris Conley and Janine Norman, joined by senior entertainment reporter uh, Elizabeth Wagmeister for Variety, <laughs> and then someone named Clayton Davis, this film dude. awards yeah. editor at Variety. Not that guy. You don't even go here. They refer to uh, Ewags and and Clayton as Hollywood insiders. Hollywood. I am inside Hollywood. I was inside Hollywood last week. Yes. Are you doing this from your home? Is it going to be over Zoom? I presume. I TBD. So I might be at I, I might be at the Oscars, or I might be just straight up uh, in a studio by Wait, myself. Wait, when you say at the Oscars, are you going to be in LA? I might be in LA. <gasps> Look at oh this! We're breaking gosh. an exclusive. Hey, I think you you should be the one like on the train at the, at uh, Union Station, just like <laughs> I swear you know. to God, I'm getting a train ticket. Like, cause I'm gonna leave. Like, I, I, you know what they'll do? They'll make me leave right before the ceremony starts, and then I like, jump on the train and I'm gonna scream as it rolls by. Like, yeah. I'm gonna just like be reckless. <laughs> but I think you also should you should wear like an engineer's cap and just like oh, yeah. fully like you know. Oh my God, it. who over under three people wear engineer caps to the ceremony? Right. <laughs> And, and I think whatever you talk about your choices, at, at the end you go, toot, toot. <laughs> oh, my God. Every, every I'm, choice. I'm just, I'm just going dad jokes all day <laughs> at, at the ceremony. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. But, yeah, so that, that was a little bit of good news there. Um, other than that, the season is almost over. God, it's right there. It's <gasps> right goodness. there. Guys, you're listening to this, and awards voting is open. It closes the 20th, and then the Oscars are next Sunday. Yeah, next Sunday, and then we uh, twenty fifth. 
And that Emmy season. That Emmy season. Emmy season. Right. Two, two. It's already starting. Do you guys want to make a last second plea for any categories? Oh, yeah. Feel? I think we should. Yeah. Mike should go first because he's watched the most movies. Go, Mike. <laughs> I don't even have things in front of me. So don't go to me. Uh, Janelle, go ahead. You already said her before. Just go ahead. You can say what? it more. Oh, no. You know what? Um, You're going to use your powers for good, not evil? Let me think. Start with jazz. <laughs> okay. Everyone's oh my making, gosh, the pressure. No I pressure. I will go well, first then, Jesus. Fine. All right. I was going to say costume design, Trish Somerville, man, I do love those costumes and what she did. Um, and she also is just, I mean, the colors, the color scheme that she used to transform those costumes for Fincher, that's my number one plea. And in acting, please watch Pieces of a Woman. I know Vanessa Kirby didn't win the BAFTA, but this is my shout out for Vanessa Kirby before you vote. Yeah, that was a, that was gonna be my, like Vanessa Kirby. I she's my personal actress winner of the year. I think she gives the performance of the year of anyone. So that's just my undying devotion to her this season. But I would love it if she won after winning nothing beforehand because <laughs> that would just we we always need another Adrian Brody type. Thing in the acting category to so always be fun and i'm actually i would love minati to upset and score mm. i love that score so much i've been listening to it a lot lately and i'm like i, I like i i wish there would have been more of a rallying cry behind it but uh and daniel kaluuya just keep doing what you're doing like there <laughs> no one's ever lost the oscar after winning the four big awards and he's the only one that has all four of all the front runners this year. He makes prediction that race easy. Yeah, I mean, and watch it, watch him lose because this year's terrible. So there you go. Y'all, yeah, y'all might think I'm a little crazy. I'm gonna go against the grain. Um, I thought the makeup in Hillbilly Elegy was excellent. Um, I really did. I thought it was just subtle enough. I thought it transformed these faces we know so well um, in very subtle ways. Um, and then, you know, this isn't like a long shot or anything I'm hoping, but I, I really would love to see Carrie Mulligan win Best Actress. I agree. Vanessa Kirby is amazing. They're all amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be mad if Viola Davis wins. Come I'm on. Be she's mad one of the, yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, I'll be happy for any of them, but I just. Which, by the way, can we ever, has there been a year that you really could say that about any of the five that you're like, really any of the five I'm cool with? I will, well, nope. You know what? I was about to yeah. say supporting actor a couple years ago was a crazy lineup with Richard E. Grant and Adam Driver and Mahershala Ali mm. and Sam Elliott. But, uh, oh, and uh, Sam Rockwell. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. But Yeah. All right. Uh, Michael, your favorite film of the Michael, year. Michael, wake up. From <laughs> what you've seen. I love um, how his American Idol headphones on I right know, now. right? After the shocking elimination or D, DQ or leave or they're not even saying what it is of uh, and the return of, of oh return of Paula because uh, Luke got COVID because uh, of the COVID yeah one of the uh, front runners of the season left the show I, for, I like that you're still so invested in Idol all, I do, all these years I, later it's the, it's the weirdest thing about me I think <laughs> it's, I, the, the, I, I'm an encyclopedia of Idol like it's yeah. very weird 
stuff that you say that with pride it's it's useless knowledge like sometimes you never know sometime we're gonna be on an island one day and then they're gonna be like so what happened with american idol like which season you do you want to talk about and i can educate you on all of it that'll be good especially (laughs) there for a long time yeah um yeah i mean listen uh it would be fun to see minari um but i'm i'm kind of it is a good crop I tell you a couple that I would rather not see with Ooh. Best Picture. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> see, that's interesting because I actually like all the Best Picture nominees this year, which is pretty unprecedented for me. Oh, we should, by the way, just because we can't take this for granted, Chloe Zhao, yes, do that in director. Like, do it in director. I'm not going to speak against it. Yeah, like, I'm not going to speak against it, but if yeah. you wanted to vote for Emerald Fennell, I wouldn't object. One of them. <laughs> One of those two. Yeah. One of those two. It's fine. Absolutely. Actually, absolutely. if Lee Isaac Chung did it, I wouldn't be upset. Oh either. my god! Yeah, <laughs> I would actually yeah, cry exactly. for him because that means his son is crying at home, and that means Alan Kim is crying somewhere else. You just want to make people cry. Yeah. Spe- like- speaking of crying, like so, so that's how like maybe I'll judge uh, best animated feature film. Which of the nominees made me cry the most? And that's probably Onward. Mm, Onward was great. Mm-hmm. That's why it was my number two was- of the year. That was the last movie I also saw in theaters. Same. Same. Oh, you guys went out with a good one. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> one. I, I, I ugly cried in a way that I haven't in a really long time. I was really embarrassed for myself. Like, it, I was, I was crying so much that Sophia, my ten-year-old, she was nine at the time, turns to me and she's like, "Can you stop?" Like, she told me to stop <laughs> because I was like, like, just trying to kill her. But she's like, she's like, stop. Like, she was like, I've never felt oh. that from her before yeah but but, but yeah. i totally uh, agree with you like i remember being in theater and like having to like silence myself because i was going to do one of those like when you're crying so much that you like when you go to breathe you're like <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Your, your bottom lip starts flapping yeah yeah, yeah. And you're like, control oh. yourself. You're A with your kids, and you, you're trying to be strong <laughs> for them. Dad, jeez. <laughs> it was all about peeking through the rocks, man. The peeking through the rocks was killing uh. me. Oh, and yeah. then giving them the hug. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it it's, let's face it, it's like part of that is being a parent, and you yeah. know, you, you watch that, oh, and you're just like, so oh, sorry, just Jazz and I wouldn't get it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I still wanted to cry anyway. Yes. Oh. No, no, we're not allowed to. Oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> Wait, we're parents to fur babies, Janelle. Janelle, this, this is, is the passive-aggressive thing you were talking about on the wall earlier. <laughs> this happened in real life. <laughs> uh, but on the podcast this week, Viola Davis. Hey, uh-oh. look at that. Ooh. And Ramin Barani, adapted screenplay nominee for The White Tiger, second person from Iran ever to be nominated. Wow, who was the first? Oh, Hossein Amini. Yes, as soon as I said it, I realized it had to be. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of people. Yeah, Um, well, actually, technically, he's first and second because Nassim Pedrad's sister is one of the co-writers on Borat. That's right, she is Nina Pedrad, I believe. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! You mean TV's Chad? Ah, TV's Chad. All comes back to TV. It all comes back to TV, and we'll leave you with that. See y'all next week. Bye. Bye. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Clayton Davis. Based on the August Wilson play, 
Ma Rainey's Black Bottom tells the story of the tension that builds between Ma Rainey, nicknamed the Mother of Blues, portrayed by Viola Davis, her ambitious horn player Levy, played by the late and great Chadwick Boseman, who's also Oscar-nominated, and the white management team that surrounds her and that is determined to control her music in 1927 Chicago. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. Well, I done learned that. And they're gonna treat me the way I wanna be treated no matter how much it hurt them. They back there right now calling me all kinds of names, calling me everything but a child of God. But they can't do nothing else because they ain't got what they wanted yet. As soon as they get my voice down on one of them recording machines, then it's just like I be some whore and they roll over and put their pants on. They ain't got no use for me then. I know what I'm talking about. You watch. And Irvin, he right there with the rest of them. He don't care nothing about me either. He been my manager for six years, and the only time he had me over his house was to sing for some of his white friends. Huh, I know how they do. Yeah, you colored and you can make them some money, then you all right with them. Otherwise, you just a dog in the alley. I'd have made them more money for my records and all them other recording artists they got put together, and then they want to bark about how much this session is costing them. I can't see how it's costing as much as they say. Shit ain't. I don't pay that kind of talk no mind. Viola Davis starts by discussing working with what she calls a perfect cast. How have you been holding up during this whole pandemic and whole time? Um, like everyone else, I have days of complete numbness, days where I feel like I'm melting down and need three glasses of wine. And then mm. some days where I feel so appreciative and grateful to be alive and to be able to spend time with my family. It's just a sort of wellspring of emotion, but... Um, it's been a difficult time. It's it's been a revelatory time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Are you a, are you a red wine or a white wine kind of woman? I'm an all wine woman. <laughs> okay. but, um, you don't discriminate. <laughs> I'm really sparkling wine woman, really, and vodka mm. woman. But um, I'll take the red wine too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Those those are the things that people need to know. Like if we're gonna. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're gonna drink. If we're gonna, if we're gonna drink. If we're gonna drink with Viola Davis. I want to know yeah. mm. what I'm about to get into. Um, all right, so let's, I mean, we have to start here with your performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, working with George C. Wolfe and a fantastic cast. Um, how did it feel working with this, with this fine group of people? On, it on this felt project? sort of like perfection, you know? It sort of felt like this sort of perfect collaboration and alchemy of great artists. You have August Wilson who wrote, wrote the century cycle of plays to chronicle black lives and black history um, in each decade in the 20th century. Then you have George C. Wolfe who comes with his own background um, on Broadway, on film. I think I did Nights in Rodanthe with him with Diane Lane, Richard Gere years ago. And then you have Denzel Todd Black as producers. You have Ann Roth costumes. You have um, Mia and and Jamaica and Sergio hair and makeup and and then you have the fantastic cast. So it sort of was like this perfect collaboration of artists where you you didn't have to work hard to imagine yourself in this world. This world was 
me. This world was black. This world was understanding of black pathology. And then you have actors who had the willingness to dig down deep. Perfection. That's yeah. what you and I had a conversation uh, at a SAG Q&A some time ago, something that's really stuck with me. And you said one of the great things about the story uh, by August Wilson is it's a story about just being black. Like just it's like a, a, it's a black story. It's yeah. not like, you know, it's, it's not slavery. It's not like, yeah, you exactly. know, it, it's, it's just the black story. Why, why do you think that there is um, such a... I'd say a shortage of those types of stories uh, still today, or, or do you see a, a good trend working towards that direction? I definitely feel like there's a good trend be only because I know the artists out there who are taking it into their own hands. I think what has, to be frank, what has gotten in the way of really just exploring our pathology, meaning that we're the show, our hearts, who we are as a show is because I think people um, are too concerned with the audience. They're too concerned with the white audience. They're too concerned with the white audience understanding us, having a way into our, our stories. So that's why a lot of times um, in Hollywood, they have to wait for a black movie to become successful. And then it gives them permission to do a lot of movies like that with mm -hmm. black people in it as opposed to just taking the chance and believing that like our white counterparts, sometimes the only, the only uh, sort of nucleus in the center of the narrative is about, look at unmarried woman was just about a woman who after she got divorced, she just wanted to explore her singlehood. That's all it was about, you know? You know, I always, Kramer versus Kramer was about a woman who just really didn't want to be a mom you know, loved your child, but didn't want to be a mom. We don't have that. A lot of our stories have got to be metaphoric in nature. They have to be academic and almost intellectual. And if they are emotional, they have to deal with slavery, drive-by shootings, anything that is in the news today, or they have to be biographical, which, listen, I have biographical movies. I'm not downplaying yeah. that. But I'm answering your question. The reason why our pathology, the study of what makes us tick, is not the center of the narrative is because there's no way in for the white audience. They don't understand it. I don't know. I mean, that's a larger question. <laughs> it really is. You, you don't you don't have all the answers to that to that question. Yeah. Like why? Why? Or I, I, always, I always tell people, uh, especially in this space as a as someone who's half Puerto Rican, half black, and is very, and very big on diversity and inclusion on all fronts in Hollywood, in front of and behind the camera, mm -hmm. it's been it's been so frustrating to have conversations with people where they're like, "But that didn't make money," or "This doesn't make money," and there are so many films that don't make money, and that director or actor or actress works again, no problem. Like, without even a beat, without even a beat. That type of film is made again and again. And one of the reasons, in my opinion, is, is that there's a narrative and there's a conversation that needs to be had, but there's not a lot of people who have the um, ability to have it. 
For instance, the only artists who are asked any questions about inclusion, diversity, are actors of color. Directors, um, white directors, white actresses and actors are never asked questions about intersectionality or inclusivity. And they're all the better for it. Um, very few, uh, listen, you, you're gonna ask me questions about you know the storyline of Ma Rainey, all of that. But I think that what happens is that then you don't have the ability to see it. You just don't. So then what happens is as you move through the world, whether you know it or not, with microaggressions, with racial biases, you then just become a product of your culture. And if you are a product of your culture, then you're not even going to see me in the same way you see, I'm going to throw out a name of fantastic actresses, Frances McDormand. It's, you're just not going to see me the same. <laughs> I mean, and it goes beyond ability. It, it means that you have been schooled on the, in your mind, quote, unquote, limitations of my blackness. And then that spills over into narratives. It's why I had a hard time even with um, how to get away with murder, to be seen as sexual. And I think, you know, we can't get into colorism. I mean, <laughs> that's a, I mean we could go on and on and, and yeah. we're all guilty of that, yeah. is um, you become a product of your environment and your environment has schooled you, has educated you into seeing that this is a limitation. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's going to spill over into the narratives. It just is. And I'm saying that, I, yeah, there probably is a little anger going on there, if you, but maybe a little bit. But really, it's just me speaking plainly. Yeah, and I appreciate truth always. And that's why we love you for it. You know, it, it, we can't sugarcoat what what has been a problem for ever in, in yeah. history that people are just starting to get warmed up uh, to the idea of. But what, one thing I do, what I do ask, and this is why kind of on, on these, uh, these conversations, I, I like a, a little more lax. I like to learn about what makes you tick and what got you into this industry. Do you recall early days, Viola Davis, which was only like 20 years ago, cause you're 25, 26 years old now. So, yeah. <laughs> so when, when, uh, when you were first, like, you know, do you remember that, early film that like kind of slapped you and you were like, Oh my God, I really want to be an actress now. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. Miss Tyson. Mm. Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. That was it. That was the moment, the day, the hour. Yeah, it was that. And then after that, of course, there's a slew of actors. It's like Jane Alexander, Meryl Streep, um, you know, uh, I mean, Jenna Rollins, any number of people, um, Ruby Dee, uh, but that was the moment it was. And the thing about acting that always got me was that it gave me permission to tell my story without telling my story. It gave me permission to use what was inside of me, whether it was trauma, pain, joy, um, whatever it is to be able to channel it through a character and show a human being 
and create a human being. And there was something very healing about that um, to me. And there was something very revelatory about watching it with other actors, watching it with Miss Tyson when she goes to the water fountain and she drinks that water for the first time when she's allowed to drink it sort of as a free black person. Um, seeing, you know, the man drive up down that road to the plantation, driving down the big white house to the sharecropper's home. That was Singleton Plantation. That's where I was born. And then seeing her sister come out of the house. And I know that actress from New York, and I'm forgetting her name right now. And I really believe they were who they were. I really believed it. I didn't think that they were copying other actors. I didn't think it, they were doing it for entertainment. I really believed it. And there's something magical about that that really um, propelled me into acting. We obviously know the Oscar set, Halle Berry's the only black woman to ever win that award. And I think there's this idea now, especially with the, the Academy announcing their diversity and inclusion standards this past September, that we are moving into this tokenism type of, uh, of, of rewarding. And I besmirched. I'm like, that is crap. I hate it. Um, but where, uh, where do you see some of that problem lying, uh, for recognition in the, in the industry, not just for yourself, just for black women overall. Cause that's not, cause we've had more great performances than you and, and Hallie yeah. over the years. Absolutely. Number one, it is nothing to be celebrated. Okay being the second, the most, the all of that. The only reason why I'm breaking any records is because no one has been recognized. That's why. I mean, that that, that honor is, is a uh, sort of limited honor because what's happened, this is a bigger question. Now I understand, see this is, it's not a problem, it's just a cultural sort of moray. We love competition. We love awarding someone for being the best of the best of the best of the best. There is no best. Can we just say that? Can we just, and, and, and so, so here's, the, here's the problem. The problem is with the movie making business itself, not with the awards. Once again, I say this all the time, you cannot nominate anyone for awards if there are no films being made. And if the films being made are not on the level of excellence, where you get the best writers, the best directors, people know right now who's gonna be nominated next year based on scripts that they've um, read online, based on the pedigree of the person, what they've done before, what they've managed before, who's got the flashiest part, all of that. As a producer, I'm telling you, what happens is, and trust me, I am really grateful for a lot of what we've been able to accomplish. But as a black artist, it is so hard to get films made that don't fit a certain box of how they see us. And that therein lies the problem. So if you can't make films, then what is there, what is there to be nominated for? So that becomes the problem. And inclusivity cannot be a hashtag. You can't, you can't sort of fill a role in because you want to be politically correct or because you want to avoid the cancel culture. You've got to write roles for people of color that are culturally specific, 
that are just as thought out as our white counterparts' roles to get to the point of excellence so that we could be considered for awards. But a lot of time with inclusivity, it's a second thought. That's the problem, you know, we're, we're the leftovers, as you know, as Toledo says. You know, and then when our lives are explored, we're explored on, you know, I always tell people when people say that person has a better role, that person should win because so-and-so didn't hit it. Viola didn't hit it like Francis McDormand hit it. I'm just throwing names out yeah, like that. Yeah. Or Carrie Mulligan or whatever. But a lot of our roles are not written with the same depth, with the same excellence, with the same passion in mind. I always say I do the best I can with what I've been given. A lot of times we have to make the role. And nobody's looking at that. Nobody's looking at the actor who's making the role. They're looking at the role. And then, because let me tell you something, if the role is great on the page and then you get a really great actor to play it, then that's dynamite. Yeah. You get a role that's half-baked, half-explored, no understanding of that person's psychology, pathology, blackness, anything. And then you put it even in the hands of someone who's excellent, who's carrying it over the finish line. You're not going to be seen because you have white critics who don't understand you. You have a white audience that, you know, a lot of them don't even have black friends, brown friends or any kind of friends. So they don't have any understanding of you unless, I don't know, you made it in the history book. Mm -hmm. Um and then you have a lot of our films that are not distributed. So you don't even know where to see them, how to see them or anything. There is a huge, there is a bigger conversation. And even on a lot of these websites, see, I'm going off now, even on a lot of these websites, which are really, really, really just toe the line with a complete lack of understanding of inclusivity, diversity and race. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is the problem is with the movie making business itself. What films get green light? What going out there and looking for those actors mm -hmm. who are nameless and faceless, who are great, who are just standing on the periphery waiting to be discovered. You know, it's a lot of conversations that need to be had. Viola Davis doesn't go to set of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom directed by George C. Wolf, and say to herself, I want to win an Oscar for this, so I'm going to do this to win an Oscar. No actor oh, does wow. that. And that has been one of the big, like, like, oh, they're just trying to win an Oscar. What does that even mean? Like, who who actually says, like, I'm going to win an Oscar, so I'm going to just keep doing it? Like, that's but not, I'll tell never... you what that means. What yeah. that means in the profession where nobody understands it. That's why Uta Hagen wrote a book called Respect for Acting is most people want to be famous actors. They don't want to be actors. So it, it, it goes along with, with every other misconception about our business, that the reason why you walk into a movie is because you want to be in awards consideration um, the only reason to do a role is if it's a lead role that's well written, that I don't know, a great director is going to direct. If you want to be an actor, let me tell you something. I've done plays in church basements that I got paid $250 a week and I had to take a train and a bus for four hours one way just to get to the theater. That's being an actor. I'm not trying to puff myself up. 
I'm just using it as an example. Yeah, please. But there's no understanding of that in this business. The only realm of w- in which we can understand acting are the people who have the high net worth, the people who are getting awards consideration, the people who are famous. Hmm. That's our only way into acting. That's it. <laughs> you know, we're going to IMDb Pro Star yeah. Meeting. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you know. Uh, understood. So my, I, I've just, uh, we have like little rattle off questions. These are fun questions to mm-hmm. get to know you some more. Uh, what's Viola Davis's favorite comedy? What's the movie that makes you laugh to your cry? Probably Stir Crazy. Anything mm-hmm. Richard Pryor. Interesting. Makes me laugh. I yep. like that. Uh, favorite horror movie. What scares Viola Davis? The Exorcist. That's mine too. Davis's. I mean, yeah. Excellent, excellent actors. I mean, come on, Lee J. Cobb, you know, Ellen Bernstein. I mean, come on. Awesome. <laughs> uh, if Viola Davis was uh, a teenager today, what poster would be hanging in, in your bedroom of like a classic Hollywood actor that you would have been like in love with? Just would have been like your go to celebrity actor. crush. Actor, 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 anyone that would have been your celebrity crush. Okay, I'm gonna say it, and you know what? Th- this is gonna be a big disappointment, maybe for people. It was Sylvester Stallone. I was—I just thought he was a cutie pie as a teenager. It was him. I mean, a little bit of the Robert De Niro's and the Al Pacino, yeah. but it's my favorite answer sorry. ever. Yeah, oh it my was. god, sorry. Sly, so I think you're taller than Sly, though. He's a short guy. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Like he was seven feet tall. I know that's true. true. And I grew up with a lot of talent. So there you go. There you go. Um, (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, What is the one role that you really want to play that you haven't played yet? Is there a play in a film? So it could be adaptation. Is there something that you you want to do? That's always a hard question. It's anything Mm -hmm. that's great, but I love Nora in a doll's house. It's a complete journey. It's a complete play. It's all of that. I would love to do something like that. What's the, what's your favorite place you've ever visited? Uh, country, place in the world. Greece, easily. Athens and Santorini, without question. Loved it. Okay. Uh, and last one. If you knew what you knew now, at the time when you were a child, would you still go into acting? Oh yeah, absolutely. Would I, you have I, a talk? With, would, you, would you have a different conversation with yourself though? Absolutely, would I would have yeah. a conversation with myself like a lot. Like it, it's it's so funny you said that too, Clayton, because I was just thinking about that this morning. Really? I said I should have had a different conversation with myself about the business. I really should have. <laughs> oh my God! That, yeah, we have to assess some things. Uh, but listen. I, I think you are just a wonderful addition to this industry that is full of talented people. And you are someone that I know we, we, we hate the land of firsts and stuff like that in seconds. And listen, and this is coming from someone who is one of very few, the first people of color to ever hold this position in any. Yes, you are. Case. So I, I, I look at that, but this responsibility that we get, we take it and there's going to be little boys and girls that are going to want to do what we do because they see us. So um, 
I found I've, I've loved acting as well in film because of people like you. So thank you, thank you thank for that. You. Uh, congratulations on all your success. Good luck at uh, at one of the upcoming ceremonies that you, you know, whenever, you know. Uh, but, uh, oh, by the way, are you going to do like more August Wilson movie adaptations, you think? I don't know. I think, uh, I don't think, know. Is it enough for you? <laughs> I mean, I'm at the point where I'm like, I could do one project a year and be good. You know, mm. I'm just, uh, I think creativity can be explored in a lot of realms. Mm. Is there any, you're into go back to TV at all, like a limited series or anything like that? Oh, yes. I love television. Really? You can reach a broader audience with TV. TV is probably the most diverse place ever. So yes, absolutely. Oh. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is nominated for five Academy Awards and is currently streaming on Netflix. When it comes to writer and director Ramin Barani, he's incredibly humbled and excited for the recognition that he's received from the Academy being nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Senior Artisans editor Jazz Tanke sat down with the filmmaker to discuss this recognition, along with the rise of AAPI hate and the crimes that have plagued this community over the past few years. You feel some sort of gratification that your colleagues, your peers, people that you admire and have admired for a long time have recognized your work. I mean, that's that's always a good feeling. And um also, you know that some part of it is luck, too. You know, there's so many other great writers and great films that were made that weren't nominated and it could have gone in any, in any other direction. So some part of you is gratified and the other part is you're enjoying, enjoying the moment of luck and recognition. Why do you think, you know, I mean, the film has found a huge audience. It, I mean, it's been number one in 64 countries. I've had calls and messages from people who I've recommended it to and I've been like, I don't know how it's going to sit with them. And they'll come back and be like, this was so good. It touched me. And and I was like, wow, why do you think it's resonating with so many people? Um, I mean, I guess there, there could be a few reasons. It's a, it's a great novel. I mean, Arvin's novel is brilliant. Adarsh and all the actors are really compelling to watch. And I think the core journey and the core theme, you know, a, a man who is trapped by his society and by the caste, class, the, the corrupt, rich politics. And this man just wants to be free. He wants to be free to reach his potential as a human being. I think it's a universal theme that anyone can understand and relate to. And probably in the age of growing wealth inequality, maybe now more than ever, you know? Yeah. So you and Arvid go back years, you know, you've been friends for the longest time. What was the conversation that began this story for the white tiger? God, I mean, he, he's the one who found and wrote this brilliant novel, but we had, you know, we have, have had so many dialogues about, a lot about movies, you know, we are, our, our friendship started with movies. He has said the friendship started with, um, mean streets. I asked him to come watch this movie, mean streets, which I loved and taxi driver, but we had a lot of conversations about 
those films about writers that we admired. You know, um, I introduced him to Steinbeck because, you know, Arvin's coming from India. Steinbeck wasn't an author that he had read. And he introduced me to Dickens because Dickens was, a, was an author I hadn't read. And both are, are writers that were, were writing about great characters in socially complex worlds, you know. Um, we talked a lot about Dostoevsky. We talked a lot about Ralph Ellison and, and Richard Wright and the Black writers. So somehow through books and movies, we really had a long, long, decades-long talk before either of us had made films or written books about wanting to tell entertaining, captivating stories with great characters that were about underrepresented people, the impact of um, economics and politics, capitalism and other forces on human beings and what that does to them. I think that's kind of a dialogue we've been having for a long time. I love that you mentioned you hadn't, you know, really read Dickens and yeah, yeah as a Brit, it's like, you know, that's part of our society, I, right? Like I, I can't even remember the first, I think I was like five when I had like a children's version of Dickens. So what was your first Dickens novel? I'm just curious. Uh, Bleak House. What yeah. do you remember about that? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, it was, it, again, it was what we talked about. It's just, Great, great characters, but not not averting your eye to social problems in the world around you, you know? And how do you do that but still tell a captivating tale, you know? Um, I think that's what the White Tiger does so brilliantly. It, it entertains, it makes you laugh, it surprises you in its storytelling, but it leaves you with a lot of things to think about and talk about. You know, there's no, there's no easy answer. Yeah. You know, it's a real anti-hero. So I, I always thought Arvind was much better at that than I was in my own work of just entertaining and getting you to think about hard subjects. What I love about the film is just how you portray this or just how you capture it. And also, you know, seeing Delhi and this environment like talk about your research and going there and what you how you how you captured that as a as a filmmaker yeah I I went there for a couple months to do research and location scout and um I the first thing I did was I wrote down every location that was in the novel even if it wasn't in the script and then I went to those places um so they were all over Delhi, different neighborhoods, locations, streets, um, including the Rooster Coop Market at Jama Masjid, um, and then going to different cities to to um, Donbad, which I came to learn later no one else had been to on my crew. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a rough town. Um, you know, going to the Bihar region, to the Ganges, to the Mother Ganga River, you know, um, going to villages around that area where... Balram's fictional village would have been near the near the Bodhgaya where the Buddha found enlightenment. So going into those villages, meeting meeting people, talking to them. And then <clears throat> Bangalore, going to Bangalore where Balram becomes a successful entrepreneur and looking at that and meeting people, meeting drivers. So that was a big part of the research. Um, and then talking to a lot of drivers, 
in parking lots, outside of shopping malls, in the underground garages on in luxury apartment towers, and hearing their stories, um, how much money do they make? How many people are they, you know, um, providing for? What is it that they had dreamed about doing before this? Did they have a dream other than being a driver? Um, was that even something that they could allow or be afforded to have an imagination about? And then, um, and it was interesting how similar the drivers were to what Arvin had written. The biggest difference now was they were all staring at their phones all the time because <laughs> everyone had a smartphone. And when Arvin wrote the book, they didn't. So, but that, that talking to the drivers was really, really informative. And in terms of the film's visual language, the cinematography and the color, you know, the color palette is so lush. I mean, what were you trying to, I guess, capture with the, the film's visual language and who were your influences for that? Yeah, yeah the, the cinematographer Paolo was amazing. Um, in fact, we just chatted this morning. Um, you know, what we really wanted to do was to transport audiences to a, a different world. And it was many worlds because it's a big, epic story. So we wanted to make sure every every segment of the story felt and looked different in terms of visual palette color, but also camera movement and visual strategies with the camera. So the village sequence was really hand, a lot of handheld, even if it was on a dolly, it was handheld on a dolly. Um, the, the, the village itself was quite dusty and yellow. So that, that made sense for that location. The next place he goes, Donbad, which is this rich villa, you know, we wanted wide, wide lenses and, and very, a lot of dolly movement and, and steady cam movement to see our hero in this small and this big, massive place that was so clean and crisp compared to where he had come from. And in Delhi, it was about really trying to differentiate upstairs, downstairs, you know. Mm. Um, we talked about Wong Kar Wai's film Fallen Angels as a, as a color reference for the downstairs area. Um, and then in, in Bangalore, we wanted all these glass buildings. We wanted something very futuristic. And we talked about Scorsese's camera movement for that sequence, which had a lot of steady cam, you know, trying to express Balram's confidence, how he was now in control, how he controlled other people. And the camera movement was too, was we were trying to express that real energy he had, that feeling of being successful, you know? And one of my, you know, one scene that I thought just captures, I guess the energy, right, is when Barham shouts out the window about the rupees to that woman. I mean, talk about shooting that scene and just what it, Captures. There's like so much in a sing in that single frame. Like even if you pause it, like this picture is incredible. And if you've been, you know, to that part of Asia, you know, it's the same in the Philippines. Where, it's, I mean, just talk about shooting that scene and what you what it was saying. Yeah, that was. I love that scene. Um, <laughs> Well, I like anytime my actors surprise me, I'm very excited and I'm always pushing them to surprise me and to do things I never expected or thought about. Um, so that's in old Delhi, which is the most crowded part of Delhi. And it's a completely 
live environment of which we have no control of, and nor, nor did we even think of having control of. So to shoot it, we just got rid of the crew. There were very, very few people there. Um, and the few people we had were far away and no one was wearing any identifying mark that they were part of the crew. They, they could have just been a stranger, you know, half a block away, just in case we needed some support. And the only other actor in the scene other than Adarsh is the beggar woman. And so Adarsh came to me and said, as he often did, I want to try something. And then he would try to tell me what it was. And then I would always tell him, don't tell me, just do it. I'll be the first audience to your amazing idea. And uh, let's just see what happens. And so I just went to the beggar woman and I said, I don't really know what he's going to do. Because in the script, he should just shoo her away and say, leave me alone. But I knew he was going to do something different. So I just told the beggar woman, whatever he does, keep asking for more money and keep saying you're hungry, no matter what he does. And then he did what he did, which is he exploded on her and shouted and ripped his shirt open and shoved his wallet in her face and started shouting at real people in the street, including some police that almost arrested him because they were like, who is this guy shouting at us? And um, it was amazing because he pulled the whole of Delhi into my frame for me and gave me this incredible atmosphere and all these people there, these masses of working class people, just like Balram's character, who I think they paid no attention because there was only one camera there. And Balram, Adarsh is not a known actor. He was not, a, he's not a movie star yet. He's becoming one now. And um, he was dressed like a servant and no one, I don't think anyone would ever imagine that anyone would make a movie about a servant. That's not your typical hero. So <laughs> it was just an awesome scene that I love. It is such a great scene. And I'm so glad you brought him up. I mean, where did you find him? And what was it like seeing him bring this character to, you know, to life and just inject this persona into, into him? Into yeah, he, after, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of well-known actors in the diaspora, Indian diaspora that were interested in the part. There were, Bollywood stars that were interested. And I was interested in all of them. I, I want to work with them. But the more time I spent in India, the more I felt the actors should come from India. Um, all my cast did. And I was really hoping to find a newcomer that wouldn't be a star, that would be like Balram himself trying to rise up. And so Adarsh came in, a fully trained actor, um, scholarship to the best acting school in all of India, had done some supporting roles with some really good directors like Anurag Kashyap, and others, uh, but it never had a, a leading role yet. He's quite young. He was just 25 when we shot the film. And he just amazed me in the audition. You know, he was, he has a smile that draws you in, which I needed. He had a serious way of looking at you, which I also needed. I needed a duality in him. <laughs> and he was really good in improvisation. He was very good at being alive in the moment. Um, he wasn't initially good in voiceover. That was a they didn't understand that as much. Um, a lot of the cast, they couldn't figure out how to do voiceover. And the casting director in India, Tess Joseph, told me that it's not that common voiceover. So after he got the part, then he started to train himself to know how to do the voiceover. And that was a whole other performance he had to do on top of the performance he was doing already. So yeah. he's just amazing, amazing actor. He is so great. And, you know, 
what I love about it, and the reason we empathize with him, I think, is, you know, there is this battle between master and servant, and it is centuries old, you know, across so many cultures. And I love the voiceover aspect. I think the last time, or the last time he used it was in Plastic Bag, which is the, you know, the shop. Yes, but what was it like doing it going from using it as a sh- in the short to now doing it as a feature. Yeah. Well, look, the screenplay was not easy to write because um, there were a lot of things in it that I had never done. And um, one of them was a the voiceover. You know, it's a, um, it's a first person narration, the novel, mm. which are, it's really hard to adapt because you only know what the main character is thinking and feeling and what he observes. So, for example, like Priyanka's character had to be re- written from scratch. There's none of that is in the novel. She's just kind of a, a, a woman that yells at him and he doesn't really know. And even Ashok's character, his entire arc had to be created. The idea that he, that Ashok's character had a, a goal in India involving IT and doing all this work, that's, that's also been fabricated in the screenplay. It wasn't like that in the novel. So that was really hard. The flip side was this first person narration gave me an amazing voiceover. And to try to figure out how to use it, I was looking at movies like um, Kind Hearts and Cornets, um, Jules Jim. Fight Club was really interesting because, um, because the main character's voiceover is internal. It's about his journey, but it also had social commentary like um, Ikea and Starbucks and things like that. So for me, that becomes the rooster coop, right? Mm. I, my, metaphor, my metaphor wasn't a um, consumerism of Ikea, but it was more the rooster coop. And um, of course, then Scorsese's films helped a lot. Goodfellas was really important because it's an epic story from childhood to the end of the line for the, for the anti-hero. Wow. It's a subculture that not a lot of people know, Italian mafia from that generation. So I, ha- I have um, very specific Indian servant Hindi Indian servant culture that only someone in India would know, but other audiences wouldn't understand or know about. So that, that was, I enjoyed it. I, I, it's kind of hard now to imagine writing a script without voiceover. Um, (laughs) I think probably 70% of the voiceover was the script and 30% got revised in the edit, but it was surprisingly pretty, the script kind of worked in terms of the voiceover. And for the, for our show was interesting because we'd be in the middle of a scene and then he'd have to pause and all the actors would have to pause for, let's say, eight seconds because that's where a voiceover was going to come in the middle of a scene. And so we had to, to figure out that strategy and how to time that and how to film that and how to cut, edit that. I, I enjoyed it. Fascinating. I love that insight. And, you know, you mentioned Priyanka, who is incredible as, you know, Pinky and building her character, like how much did she influence how Pinky was formed? Especially as you said, you know, in the novel, it's done from, you know, Adarsha's or Barham's point of view. So when you're crafting this character, how much did she help inform? Oh, uh, I like working with actors that help inform their characters, period. I, I love actors that can add to the script. I love actors that can ask the hard questions that no one's thought of because they're going deeper into their part than anyone else. Even I find great actors go deeper than the writer can go on their own, you know? And, um, so it was wonderful working with her. Um, she's very smart. 
very hardworking and very instinctively true to the character. And um, she was also very generous. You know, she's a huge star, as is Raj Kumar Rao, but they both welcomed Adarsh as the lead. They knew he was a lead. They never thought any, anything else. And they welcomed him. They kind of mentored him. And the three of them really got along, which I think you can feel in the movie. But Priyanka's amazing. We're, I, I talked to her yesterday, actually. We're, we're brewing up, I hope, another collaboration. Yeah. Watch the space. What's that? But you said watch the space. Yeah. Well, I can't say what it is, but we're, we're, we're brewing up something good, I think. All right. We'll, we'll stay tuned. Um, <laughs> you know, to have this film on Netflix, and I mentioned it earlier, and have this global audience... How freeing was it for you, though, as a filmmaker to, to make Netflix the home for the White Tiger, especially with, you know, the diversity of the cast, like the story that, you know, studios for the longest time have been reluctant to tell. And then you've got Netflix, incredible global streaming platform, opening their doors, yeah. their filmmakers and storytellers. I mean, it's awesome, you know, um, my first three films, Man Push Car, Chop Shop, and Goodbye Solo, made in the 2005 to 2008, star a pop, one is a Pakistani lead, the other are Hispanic lead, and the third is a um, black Senegalese. And I remember all of them went to, two of them went to premiered in Venice, one of them premiered in Cannes. We had great sales agents, and they would always tell me, we can't sell your film in East Asia, we probably can't sell it in big parts of, you know, um, Latin or South America, except for the Hispanic film and, and all kinds of things like this. And I kept saying, why? And we know the reasons why. Um, and that was always so frustrating to hear. And what's amazing in, let's say the 10 years, 15 years since then is how audiences are, are finally being given an opportunity to see things that they want to see. And Netflix, I feel has been a big part of that. And so I'm very grateful for that. You know, um, I'm Iranian American. My crew was 99% Indian. I only brought four or five people with me from the West. Um, my cast is all South Asian. It's 30% in Hindi. And they financed it on a real scale to let me make an epic movie. And we did it with Scott Stuber, um, Sarah Bremner, Andrew Norman, and Tendo at the at the studio division in LA. So they were there from the script stage prepared to help me make this movie. Um, and, and that was awesome. Awesome experience. And next up you're, you're adapting Amnesty. Yeah. As, and you're going to, well, it's set in Australia. Um, I mean, what can you tell us about that? Well, that one, that, that, yeah, that novel I've been, I was reading for five years before it was published last year. Um, it, it published right at the height of the pandemic, which is always hard to deal with, but it was on a lot of top 10 lists. Um, it's set in Sydney. I have visited most of the locations when I was in Sydney about five years ago for a screening of 99 Homes. And it's about a, um, it's about a Sri Lankan illegal immigrant who cleans homes for a living in Sydney and one day hears about a murder and um, 
he thinks he knows who the murderer is, but if he does anything about it, he's worried he will get deported. So it's a pretty tense kind of cat and mouse game over the course of one day in, in Sydney with a real question of what are your moral obligations in this world if you have no rights as a human being? So I think it's pretty timely and another another yeah. great novel by Arvind. Yeah. I mean, talking about timely, you know, the, the white tigers come out and there's this, there is the conversation of representation and here we have this film. And then at the same time, there is this, in, you know, there's this awful, you know, the AAPI hate that is going on that has increased. I mean, what can what can we do? Like, what is the solution? And I don't know if there is an, you know, a solution, but what are the steps we can take as a community to, I guess, enlighten, you know, I guess, enlighten people of like the culture, you know, our cultures and I, I guess, um, I guess enlighten people, right? It's education. I think it right? is education. I mean, um, there's something maybe you can discuss with um, Scott and Annalee. I mean, I was doing an interview with Ava last week here in Atlanta, and in the middle of the interview, somebody shouted at me that I should go back to my own country in the middle of the interview. Here in Atlanta, I was standing on the street doing the interview. Um, I think it's educating. I think it's making people aware. Um, and that's something that I feel um, artists can do, but I feel you're certainly in a position to do. And then for, for the filmmaker, I think it's, and writers, I think it's just not averting your eyes, you know, but to stay vigilant, you know, um, and tell stories, you know, I, I, all my, almost all my films have been about these kinds of characters and subjects. I, I produce films now too. I produced two films in Brazil for Alex, Alexander Morado, who's a young gay Brazilian American director. And I also produced a film in Malta for my assistant editor, Alex Camilleri. He's telling stories from Malta, which no one's ever done before. No one's made movies in Maltese language with Maltese characters. And so I, I like that. I, I like telling these stories, which I think have something to say, but again, you're trying to just find compelling characters and compelling stories. And that if you can get audiences hooked into that, they'll start to see real people there. You know, um, I have two awesome former students from the Philippines that have made really good films, by the way. I think they're going to be people you're going to be seeing feature films from soon. And I, I think you're going to be thrilled when you see them. They're really good. I did see that video with you and Ava Scott sent it to me. Yeah. And it was horrific that, you know, we are told go back to your country. And I'm like, but this is my country in the same way that I grew up in Britain and, you know, for 30 odd years of my life. And it's like, but where would I go? Not, not just that, but did you read Suketu Mehta's book, um, uh, um, This Land is Our Land? I um, haven't. 
it's is on really my reading good. list. It's really good. And he talks about um, when his grandfather, his grandfather, his father was sitting on a bench in England and someone told him to go back to his own country, just as it happened to me the other week. And um, Suketu talks about extending his hand and saying, no, pay me because you owe me so much. You stole so much from our country. You've stolen so much. We're here to collect our debt now. We're not, we're not leaving. We're here to collect the debt that we, we are owed. Um, and of course, Iran has the same, you know. Um, we just go back to the beginning of American imperialism with Iran, 1953. And the, you know, the Dulles brothers, the head of the CIA, uh, um, toppling of Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister, prime minister of Iran who got rid of the British and wanted to, na and did nationalize oil and won his case at the United Nations and the Hague. Yet still the Americans did a coup and put in a, a phony dictator that was then training secret police and stealing money. So um, these subjects are so complicated and, and I think it's just our duty to tell these stories. And amplify them too on our end. Yeah, I think so. So Ketu's book's really good if you haven't, you do check it out. It's on my reading list. I will absolutely get it now that you've mentioned it because yeah. a few people have mentioned it to me. So I will. You, know. you can read it in it. It's a very quick read too. You can read it in the weekend, you know. I will do that, Ramin, and I will reach out to you and be like, I've done it. Um, I'm going to switch lanes. Let's switch lanes for a second. What, what is your earliest memory of film? Like, what do you remember as a young boy watching? Like, what stood out? Um, you know, there's, there, I have a weird memory that I was sharing with someone the other day. Um, I remember when I was really young, my, you know, there were a lot of people living in my house when I was growing up. Sometimes we had three, four families, Iranians that my parents had brought from Iran. They were all living in our house. And I, I was always the youngest and I had some older cousins that I admired because they were cool and older. And so me and my cousin and my brother, all of them older, got into playing pool when I was very young, billiards. And so one time this movie came out, which I was not interested in movies really, called The Color of Money by Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And I, I, we went to see the movie, not because it was a movie. We went to see it because we wanted to look at all the trick shots to play pool. I must've been like 11 or something. And I remember we came out of the theater and we're walking back to the car and my brother and my cousin were so excited about all these trick shots we were now going to go try and duplicate. And I was really excited by one scene in the film. Um, and I said, do you remember that scene where this black guy was hustling Paul Newman? And they were like, yeah. I'm like, was that guy real? Because the acting was so good. I can't understand if that was a real person or an actor. And it was Forrest Whitaker, but I had no idea. And I started to realize that there was something going on in that movie screen. And weirdly with Scorsese again, that startled me. Like a couple years later, I watched over my brother and his friend's shoulder while they watched Taxi Driver. Again, I was way too young to be watching the film. Mm. And I remember thinking, there's something's going on there in that screen that was disturbing and had power and, and was drawing me into a world that I didn't know. And I think that really got me interested in 
wanting to read and watch things that would take me to worlds that I didn't know and had never been to with characters that were, that I could understand, even if I didn't agree with the things they were doing, they were often anti-heroes, but I could understand them somehow. I love that. What a great story. Oh my gosh. I want to go back and watch Color Money and see Forrest Whitaker. I haven't seen it in the longest time. That guy is such a good actor. My God. That's Ramin Barani, writer and director of The White Tiger, now available to stream on Netflix. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Janelle Riley, Jazz Tanke, and Michael Schneider, I'm Clayton Davis. We'll see you on the circuit. Get ready for a one-of-a-kind event you don't want to miss. Variety's Entertainment Marketing Summit, presented by Deloitte. Register now for this free virtual event, featuring powerful conversations with brand leaders from companies such as Disney, Amazon Prime Video, iHeartMedia, TikTok, and more. They'll discuss the entertainment industry's evolving digital trends, storytelling strategies, and new platforms to deliver marketing messages. Registration is free, but required for virtual access. So visit variety.com slash marketing summit now.